0: Today, I hope we finish Daniel. We'll start with uh, Daniel 11 in verse 36. Last week, we looked at the Seleucid and Ptolemaic kingdoms of Greece. We had Alexander, and then the kingdom broke up into pieces. And then there was this struggle between all his generals who killed each other and got killed and trying to struggle for power, and they killed his family. And it's just this massive uh, soap opera that happened for several hundred years. And the Syrian northern Seleucid. The Lucid Kingdom is mainly battling against the southern Egyptian Ptolemaic Kingdom and they're vying for power. And we went through the actual prediction of all the things that happened with Daniel. And as we saw it was they did this to them and he did this to her so that she could do this to him and then he went there. Was this all these pronoun things which really without the benefit of hindsight would be extremely difficult to predict. I'd say impossible to predict. But you get the clear sense that something is going to happen to somebody and God's in control of it. And you get some milestones along the way. The key thing last time was that we were building up to this character who's going to speak pompous words and do the abomination of desolation. That was kind of the key point in time. And then some people in Israel would stand up against him. Starts very small, then becomes a much more widespread rebellion, many people kind of secret followers. But uh, there's a deliverance, and this king dies without human hands. This one, he meets his demise at the hands of God. And that was Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. We saw that. So today, we jump ahead several thousand years to an event that's yet in our future. We can look back on these Greeks and say, okay, well, God predicted that with amazing precision. Clearly, if he predicted something like that, that we can look in the rearview mirror and say that happened already. It should give us confidence that what he's predicted now is going to happen. And it also should give us some humility about trying to tie down exactly what that's going to look like. We had one verse where the commentators say, we're not really sure what this is. Because nobody wrote down anything we can match it to. So we know that there's going to be another abomination of desolations. Jesus spoke of that. And we know that this Antichrist, this Antiochus look lookalike, is yet in our future. So we're going to look at that today. 11.36, and I'm just going to read down through 12.3. Remember, chapter breaks are just something someone put in there for convenience. They're not in the original. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall... Shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So you can see here, we are definitely talking about the end of the age. Exactly what all this is, is conjecture in large part but there's a few things I think we can tie down let's start with at that time Michael shall stand up this certainly seems to tie directly with Revelation 12:7. so let's go look at Revelation 12:7. and war broke out in heaven Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought but they did not prevail nor was any place found for them in heaven any longer So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So this is clearly in the context of what we saw in Revelation, a time where Satan is cast out of heaven. Remember from Job, you know, he has access in and out of heaven. We tend to think as a heaven as a place where only certain people can go, but that's really not the case because apparently the demons and the angels have access there. It's the new earth and the new Jerusalem that has limited access. That's where anyone who's despicable and deplorable can't go in and out. But There's going to come a time where heaven has them all cast out. And that's right at the end. And Satan comes down and that appears to be the time where we have that great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. So that certainly seems to be this. Now we know that in prophecy you can walk along and in the middle of a sentence it'll just skip forward several thousand years. So this doesn't necessarily mean that. But it says at that time Michael shall stand up. And we in verse 40 it's at the time of the end. So they seem to be connected. This certainly seems to be like... ...the tribulation period that we're talking about. So, verse 36, "...then the king shall do according to his own will." You could debate whether this is the king that we've been talking about, like Antiochus Epiphanes, who was in the verses preceding, or whether this is the Antichrist. The commentators tend to come down on the side that this is the Antichrist, uh, mainly, frankly, because they can't match this to stuff that's happened in history so much. And because we're transitioning into the time of the end, clearly when we get to verse 12 at the time of the end. So we're going to cover it that way. It certainly seems to fit. So the king will do according to his own will. In other words, this king is going to have the ability to do whatever he wants to do. He's going to be an autocratic dictator that can say what's going to happen, and it happens. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. So once again, what has been determined? All of this is scripted out. God has it all in control. And this is all in the context of a book the Bible, that is exhorting us to make good choices. So here's this free will and sovereignty dilemma that's a dilemma for us, but it's not a dilemma to God. What God tells us to do is make good choices and don't carry the burden of outcomes on our shoulders. Cast our cares on Him, for He cares for us. God's in control of results. He's going to hold us accountable for doing our job. So. It is accomplished, which is great comfort for us. Shall be accomplished rather. Now this shall speak blasphemies. It's an interesting translation. This word is the same word as in Daniel 8:24, and this description of this guy is very much like Daniel 8:23. So let's flip back to that. This is in the context of the ram and the goat explanation. So let's go back to 20. The ram you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So you remember this was part, one of the visions that Daniel saw, and he's getting an explanation of what that is. And the male goat, there was this goat that came across the ground. His feet didn't even touch the ground. He was so fast. The large horn between his eyes is the first king. So that's Alexander the Great. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation. That's the Seleucid kingdom of the north, Syria the Ptolemaic kingdom of the south, Egypt. That's mostly what we looked at last week because those kingdoms vied for control of Israel. But you also have the Greek and the Macedonian kingdom that were much weaker, but not with its power. Those four kingdoms didn't have near the power that one united kingdom had. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So this certainly seems to be the Antichrist that's described here. And this term that's translated blasphemies, it's the same word that's translated in verse 24 as fearfully so the word fearfully in verse 24 he shall destroy fearfully or amazingly incredibly the amount of destruction will be awesome awe inspiring shock and awe so the idea here is that what he speaks against God will be stunning his defiance of God will be shocking it's so blatant and he shall prosper until his time is up he's going to be given a season To prosper and then he's going to be dispatched with. Now this fellow, verse 37, will regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desired of women nor regard any God. He will exalt himself above all. So apparently this fellow is so enamored with power and his own abilities that appetites don't interest in him any. Not even the strongest of appetites. Because they're all overshadowed with his appetite for power and him being enamored with himself. It says he doesn't regard the God of his fathers. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 38, he's going to honor a God of fortresses and with precious stones and so forth. Verse 39, then he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. So what is this? Well, this whole idea of who Antichrist is, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about. But we get one very interesting verse in the book of Micah. So let's look at Micah 5, 5. 5, verse 5. And this is a prediction. It's a judgment on Israel's enemies. And this one shall be peace... When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. So, if you go look at that whole prophecy, it appears that that's the time of the end and the Antichrist, which would mean, if that's an accurate prediction, that would mean the Antichrist would have some connection with Assyria. The Assyrian people today are known as Armenians. If you go to... Israel today, there's four quarters of Jerusalem, and there's a Jewish quarter, an Arab quarter, a Christian quarter, and an Armenian quarter. And the Armenians are descended from the Assyrians, some of the very earliest peoples to adopt Christianity. And that's one of the reasons they keep getting killed all over the place. About two-thirds of them were wiped out in a genocide initiative by the Ottoman Turks during World War I they just keep getting exterminated that could be the roots and so this doesn't honor the God of the fathers could be connected with this Assyrian and it could be someone from that area it could be someone who has that roots as a culture that comes from somewhere else but it could be someone that is from Jerusalem that starts in the Armenian quarter whatever it is He leaves the God of his fathers and invents something new. So this new thing is a God of fortresses, a God of power. Which makes sense since this guy is so enamored with power. We saw also that this guy doesn't have the power from himself. And as we saw in Revelation, his power comes directly from Satan. Satan is completely intertwined with this Antichrist character. So... This is going to be an Antiochus Epiphanes on steroids. That was a picture, but it was like a single A farm team. And this is the Yankees that's going to come next. So this is the description we seem to be getting here. And then verse 40, we get into this thing at the time of the end. There's a king of the south and a king of the north and all these things. And frankly, no one's sure what this is. You can read it as though... This antichrist is getting attacked from the north and the south. You can read it in a way where the north is an ally or even is part of the kingdom of this antichrist. just really can't tell. There's a big battle that happens in Ezekiel 37 and 38 where the king of the north and the king of the south come on the holy land, and there's this massive war, and the end of the war, there's so much wreckage that takes seven years to clean it up, and then there's the battle of Armageddon, where there's so much blood that it runs up to the bridle of a horse for a really long ways, and some people think there's three different battles, this one, Ezekiel and Armageddon, some people think it's all one, you know what that means? They don't know, and so remember again, the point of last week, if you're listening to all that he's going to do this to her, and then her roots are going to do this to them. How would you know? But the key thing is that there's a plan. There's a map. And there's going to be Geopolitics and the geopolitics is going to happen. And when you see it happening, you're, if you're there, you're going to be able to sort it out what's happening, and you know this is the end times. And, of course, the key thing is when you see this abomination of desolation. That's when the clock really starts ticking for sure. There's, the seven years starts with a treaty between the Antichrist and, and Israel, but it may not be real clear what's going on at that point in time. This, the angel of light, the Antichrist, is going to come initially as a very attractive figure. As dictators always do. You know, they always pass themselves off as somebody that's going to be for the people. You know, this is for you. I'm all about you. And then once they get power, they're just about themselves. We've seen it time and time again. Even in our generation, Hugo Chavez was that way. He promised people liberty and freedom and care. And if they disagreed with him, they shot him. I talked to a guy that was in the student protests. And he took his brother and they were, you know, rah-rah and then... Suddenly the guy next to him fell down dead and he realized, I brought my brother out here to get killed. He came to America. It's one of the reasons why fighting totalitarianism is such a big deal for us because where else is there to flee? But that's just the spirit of Satan. He's a totalitarian at heart. He said, I will ascend to the Most High. I want to be God. Being second under God's not good enough for me. I want to be God, and I'm going to control like God controls. That's me. I want to control. And that's all the spirit of tyranny is. I want to make choices for you. I don't want to give you any choices. So we see this time of the end where there's this geopolitical intrigue. Exactly what's going on there? Hard to say. But what we can say is this Antichrist is going to have the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? If he says live, you live. If he says die, you die. He's going to have the audacity of Nebuchadnezzar, who was pretty full of himself until God gave him some you know, hair like eagle's claws and he lost his mind for a period of time and he was humbled. And of course his grandson, Belshazzar, who got to experience a Writing on the wall. That audacity passed down, unfortunately. He didn't learn the humility lesson. He's going to have the ambition of Alexander, because he wants world domination, and he's going to have his way no matter what. He's going to have a new religion similar to Alexander, because Alexander spread Hellenism to the whole known world. This is the Antichrist, and he's going to have the elements of all four of the kingdoms coming before him. And he's probably going to have a massive bureaucracy like Persia did. And we know he's going to have the fierceness of Rome because we've seen the devastation that he's going to wreak on the earth when we did Revelation. So those are some thoughts about the Antichrist and who the Antichrist will be. He will go out to Great Fury, verse 44, to destroy and annihilate many. This seems to be the common theme. There's going to be massive wreckage that comes to the earth. And of course the Antichrist doesn't care because he only cares about himself. Other people dying is not a problem for him as long as he's getting power. The spirit of a tyrant. Yet he shall come to his end, verse 45, and no one will help him. So like Antiochus Epiphanes who died of a disease, the Antichrist is going to die not at the hands of a man. And we know what that looks like too. Let's look at Revelation 19, 19 through 20. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So at this point, Jesus has come to earth and he's got his army behind him. I hope a bunch of us are on those horses behind him. I think that's a very real possibility. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured, so that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive, into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So for them, they experienced their first and second death at exactly the same time. They just go straight into the lake of fire. We have an idea of what that looks like from Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel 7, 11. We'll start in 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. His hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was a fiery flame. So here we've got this throne that is it's on fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. So there's the fiery flame. Thousands of thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. This is particularly significant picture in light of the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are in the fiery furnace, and they're in there having tea with uh, Jesus. So it's a very comfortable place. Well, we can kind of see why now. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, which the horn was speaking. The horn here is the, the Antichrist. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So here, right in the presence of Jesus, there is this burning flame that destroys the beast. Now, this is in the throne room. And the other picture we had was on earth. But whatever's happening on earth is happening in the throne room and vice versa. So I don't think that's a particularly you know difficult concept to embrace okay so Daniel's telling us that this end time and then Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people remember this is all in the context of Daniel wanting to know what's going to happen to our people because they've been exiled from their homeland. They've had their temple knocked down, their city destroyed. Are we going to be restored? And we saw in Daniel chapter 9, yes, absolutely, you will will be restored. In fact, the temple will will be rebuilt, the wall will be rebuilt, and then it's all going to be knocked down again. And then it's going to be restored again. And in the process of all that restoration, sin's going to be ended. The anointed one's going to take the throne. Everlasting righteousness is going to come in. So the restoration is going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden restoration. We're going to have the tree of life that's in the paradise of God restoration. Sin is going to be terminated. Death is going to be defeated. But what you're specifically asking about, Daniel, that's going to happen too. He just got a much bigger answer to his question. And this is kind of what we do as humans. We ask for far too little because we're not capable of understanding what we could ask for, which thankfully is why the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf. Unfortunately for us, when we get way more than we ask for, we often don't realize it's a blessing. We think of it as, you know, an additional burden. And Daniel, man, when he had these visions, he's like got sick because it was so astonishing to him. And he's one of the great men of the Bible. So when God gives us more than we can handle, it's because he's elevating us to a new level of service. So that's one of the perspectives we can adopt. So Michael will stand up, the great prince, who stands watch over the sons of your people. So Michael has a specific assignment to protect Israel. And he's the one that came and fought for the angel who was trying to get through and give Daniel the interpretation of the dream after he had been uh, stalled for 21 days. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. Now just think about some of the things that have happened to Israel. They had the Babylonian captivity. Hundreds of thousands of people killed. City destroyed. And everybody yanked out and taken to Babylon. They had the Assyrian captivity. Shiloh, which was their center of worship, destroyed. And people all taken, scattered all over the earth. They actually never come back. The first time they came back was 1948. And then they had 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed the city. Again, large numbers of Jews killed. And then, of course, we had World War II. And the pogroms in the Russia, uh, what is it, six million Jews exterminated. And that was, that was on the way to the final solution where they were going to get rid of them all. And what the Bible here says is a try, time of trouble, never like anything that's happened before. That's kind of... Sobering, isn't it? So this tribulation period, this great tribulation, we saw some descriptions of like percentage of the earth that's going to die and some of the things that's going to happen. It's going to be like nothing anybody's ever seen. It's going to be horrific. And God's telling us, that this is coming. But everyone who is found written in the book will be delivered. So let's look at that. We saw that in Revelation 2. It looks like this is a Revelation 13.8. It's Revelation 13:8. We're talking about the Antichrist here. Verse 7, it was granted to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So a lot of people are going to die during this great tribulation period. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life. So there's going to be some people that don't worship the Antichrist and the prophet, and that's the people written in the book, the book of life. Verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So resurrection is going to happen during this time, this time of the end. Now, this is kind of interesting because it doesn't say everybody's going to be resurrected, but Revelation seemed to be clear that there's a resurrection of everyone, but it doesn't all happen at the same time. And we've already seen that to some extent, right? Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen. He was resurrected, and the rest of us will follow. So there's at least one that goes way before the rest of us. But Revelation 20, verse 5, indicates that there's a... First resurrection and a later resurrection. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So there's a resurrection that happens that's a special blessed resurrection. I suppose kind of like the resurrection of Jesus where he's resurrected as kind of a special resurrection of the first one that is a promise to the rest of us. But you know, the damned will be resurrected too. Because everyone is going to eventually be resurrected, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So that's pretty clear. There's going to be some that have everlasting life, some have everlasting contempt. Again, we saw this in Revelation. Now, what's hard for us is that even though this is uh, explained in binary terms if you put the judgment seat of Christ in there and the reality that if we follow in sin we put ourselves back into contempt even though we've been delivered from contempt that we suffer the judgment that is reserved for people who are not believers and it starts right here on earth because as Roman 1 says the wrath of God is delivered or reveal from heaven against ungodliness on whoever commits sin. And the judgment in Romans 1 is God giving us what we want. And we have these appetites in our flesh that don't change. And we have a new nature with new appetites. And these things are clashing. We all live this every day, right? And when we choose the appetites of the flesh, we get the consequences of the flesh. That doesn't mean our new nature's changed. It doesn't mean we're not justified in the presence of God because that is something we had nothing to do with. What it does mean is we've put ourselves back into contempt, back into slavery, back into condemnation. And we bring it on ourselves. Uh, You know, Matt gave us a great testimony a couple weeks ago with his uh, struggle with alcohol. And Matt said, I chose this and I've reaped the consequences of it, right? So does that mean Matt is not... You know, made in the image of God and a new creation in Christ? No. But it does mean he put himself back under condemnation. He had a few troubles from it, didn't you, Matt? Just yeah, just a few, right? Well, and that's the way with any sin of the flesh. They're all the same, whether it's greed or, or worry or gossip or anything else. That, that We do that to ourselves, and there's a price to pay for that. And then we, we go to the judgment seat of Christ... And the judgment seat of Christ reveals whether our works were a bale of hay, that when we put it in the fire it burns up, or whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, and when we put it in the fire it, it turns into amazing jewelry, the, the crown jewels. And that's what this next verse is about. Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now we've never seen this reward before. But think about this. After studying this, I went out in the yard last night, as I do every night, to get, take our dogs out. And I just looked up in the, in the sky, and you know it's the same stars every night. The same stars. And they change some as the seasons go. But it's just the world changing. It's not the stars changing. And that's what the picture he's giving Here is, If we are wise and we turn people to righteousness with the way we live, and and what example are we being given of what that looks like? A tax-collecting bureaucrat in a corrupt administration, Daniel. If we just do our job, whatever it is, nursery worker, mom, government official, business person, uh, engineer, or uh, craftsman, retail worker, whatever it is, Uh, Mom, Dad, if we just do that job the way God's asking us to do, He's saying, I'm going to take these jewels that were refined in the fire and I'm going to put them up there where everybody sees them every night for the rest of eternity. Ta-da! You get that? But if not, then not. So the way we live our life, even though there's no question about whose child we are, if we believe of being born into this world has no contribution by us who we become has everything to do with the choices we make with the perspective we choose with who we trust the three things we control and if we do those things well not compared to other people but compared to what gifts God gave us right to whom much is given much is expected to whom little is given little is expected God's going to grade on the basis of what we have not what we don't have And if we are faithful and we are the faithful witnesses and do not fear death, loss, rejection. If we turn to him when when our problems are revealed, he's going to make us shine like a star. That's pretty amazing. But then he says, verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up these words. Seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Well, that certainly describes the era that we're in. You know, Christopher Columbus, only, what, 500 years ago, discovered America from the Roman world. And it took him two months to get over here. I looked up some, what would that voyage cost? I got anywhere from half a million to $40 million in today's value. And estimates are that knowledge increased about every hundred years, would double. Knowledge would double about under every hundred years during that time period. Well, today I looked up the flight from Miami to Barcelona. Nine hours for under 400 bucks. Many are going to and fro. You can travel in this world amazingly. Not only that, knowledge today is increasing, doubling every year. Not every hundred years. Every year. And with all the advent of artificial intelligence, estimates are soon it will be doubling every 12 hours. Uh, we, We now have artificial intelligence where... Uh, the computers are researching, all the re- or, uh, reading all the research and compiling it and making applications. And when your doctor wants to know some kind of cancer diagnosis or something, they pull up something on the computer and they've got the latest research already digested by Watson. So it's crazy what's going on, and, and we're really at the very front end of that. So certainly could be this era. And he says, shut this up. People aren't going to really understand what this looks like until that era. Verse 5 Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, All these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I didn't understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest, and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. End of book. So, what is time, times, and half a time? Well, we've already seen this. We've already seen this in Daniel. In Daniel 7.25, this phrase shows up. And we've we've gone through this before in the Revelation series, but real briefly, if you look at the time, times, and half of times in the context that that's in, that certainly seems to be the second half of the 70th week, which we know is 42 months or 1,260 days. So then the question is, well, then why are we blessed if we wait until 1,290 days? That's 30 days more than all the Revelation times. So you got to wait an extra month. And then you're really blessed if you wait another 75 days, which is 1,335 days. So what happens in that 30 days and what happens in that 75 days? Well, you already know what my answer is going to be, right? It doesn't say. It just says we really be blessed if we wait that long. So I think what that's telling us is, Don't start ticking it down and say, okay, I only have to be faithful until this point. And we tend to do that, right? We tend to do that. "Ah, Okay, my uh, parenting's over now. I'm a grandparent, so I'm going to spoil these kids rotten. So when I hand them back to the parents, that makes it really a lot harder on the parents. And I'm getting them back. I'm I'm, I'm, uh, abusing my own children and my grandchildren. So why do we think that way? Okay, no, no, we don't check out. We have a different role to play, but it has the same goal. I want my kids to grow up and be able to make wise choices and have understanding. If they, make, if they make bad choices, that's up to them. But I want them to know how to make wise choices. Why? I want them to shine like the stars of the heaven. And he says, go to your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the end. Verse 10, many shall be purified. This word purified is a real interesting it's also translated chosen. It's also translated clearly or manifest or condition. In Ecclesiastes 3.18, it says, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God test them, that they may see them; they themselves are like animals. <laughs> so this is condition. And so people are going to have a condition that they are white. They're going to be shown to be pure, like these stars. And how do they get there? They get there from refining. We see this word several places. Judges 7, 4. The Lord said to Gideon, The people are too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them. Same word. I I want to make sure that we've got the right people that are set apart to stand with you against hundreds of thousands of soldiers and only 300 of them and have the courage to hold up nothing but a lamp in the middle of the night. I'm gonna, these people, I'm going to test them. And we're going to do that by, at the pond. Second Samuel 22.31 As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. So this is the idea that you're, you're tested and shown the quality that you are. In Nehemiah, we see the same word that's translated goldsmith. So someone that takes ore and turns it into something pure. So that's what difficult circumstances do. Amen? They demonstrate who you really trust. They show what perspective are you going to choose. Are you going to choose a perspective that says, I need to be in control here? Or do you choose a perspective that says, I know this is God has it for my best. It doesn't make it stop hurting, but I know that that's true. And you start working through that. And you start... You know, the best way... This is psychology now. The best way to change your mind is by acting. If you start taking action on something you believe, even if it doesn't feel right, your mind starts merging with what your actions are. So obedience is actually the path to change who you trust. So all these things, all these choices act together. And that's what's going on here. So Daniel... He was refined, his friends were refined, they were tested, they were purified. And he tells him at the end, you're going to have an awesome inheritance. You, this interesting word here, it's translated most places, lot. So like when Israel came and they said, we're going to divvy up the land and they cast lots. That's this same word. You're assigned portion. See, all of us, we have a job to do. God has already assigned us some job. And what we're doing is determining whether we're qualified. Are we going to go to our training and and get into that job? You know, Dave did a a really great job earlier with uh, the fiery trials of boot camp. And the guys who wouldn't do boot camp can't take their assigned job in the Army. And even though it's nine weeks, they go from boys to men in nine weeks. Why? It's because they give them fiery trials so they can prove their capability. And that's what's going to be happening here in this end times. But this principle applies to us now. We know that from the rest of the scripture. So, Daniel, a man who went through fiery trials, multiple phases of his life, he was a faithful as a teenager, he was faithful as a young man, and he was faithful as an old geezer. He was faithful in Babylon, he was faithful in Persia. He was faithful when he was high, like the third ruler in the kingdom. He was faithful when he was over the magicians, and he was faithful when he was outcast and nobody And he was just sitting on the sidelines. No matter what his lot, he said, I will trust God. And I will continue to trust God. And he even prayed and he did his things that he did normally, even when his life was at stake. Well, we know that he's going to have an inheritance. For me, I don't know what my inheritance is going to be. I don't know how big my hay bale is. I don't know how much jewels I have. But what I do know is, it's not finished yet. Whatever it is, it's not finished yet. This, I think, was pretty much at the end of Daniel's days. And so, it's kind of like Paul. I kind of know what my life has amounted to at this point because I know it's about to end. My life's been poured out like a drink of water. Our life's still in front of us as far as we know. So, what are we to do? Well, just keep on being faithful. Don't fear death. Don't fear rejection. Don't fear loss. And if we do, then there'll be an inheritance for us. And we will shine like the stars in the heaven. Isn't that a cool thought? Thank you, God, for this amazing man, Daniel. Thank you for his just inspiring example. Help us have his spirit, his wisdom. And we know we have the Holy Spirit, which is the same spirit that Daniel relied on. Help us let that spirit and that power unleash wherever you put us to walk in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.